Hard to believe we're in week seven, um, and you guys are still here, so I'm surprised. Um, we've been grinding uh, in some of these gifts, but just yeah, very, very important, obviously, that we kind of get a handle on what the Bible teaches here, and um, because God, gifts are important. Christ has given us the gifts. He's given each one of us a spiritual gift or more to be used. Uh, he expects us to use them for the edification of the body. And so as we learn what those gifts are, we learn how to use them, when we grow, we can know for certain that God is going to use us to see the church edified, built up, uh, extended in church planting. Uh, we can be confident of that. He didn't give us the gifts and then hope that they're going to work, right? So, he, so it's important that we understand this topic, and it's really an outflow of the, of the series we did last semester on just growth in general. All right, so we're calling it Gifted for Growth. And uh, just a quick overview, just to kind of get our bearings. Weeks one and two, uh, we gave a bird's eye view of what the Bible teaches about these gifts. What they are, why we have them, and we learned that a spiritual gift is what? Woo, that was quick, but it was kind of mumbly. Say it loud. A specific God-given ability, right? That's what a spiritual gift is. A specific God-given ability for what? For the edification of the church. That's right. And that was our definition. A specific God-given ability to build up the church. So after that kind of thousand-foot view, first two, first two weeks, that's not all we talked about, but that was definitely a lot of what we talked about. Um, after that 1,000-foot view, we jumped into the details. And we started studying these gifts one at a time. And we quickly learned how complicated the study can get, didn't we? Um, we jumped in to these gift lists, and we started reading them, and then we start seeing several gifts that we don't, at least in our church, don't practice today. Gifts like apostleship, prophecy, tongues, miracles. So we've taken the last few weeks, and we've looked carefully at, at those gifts. And what we've seen is that even though all the gifts are for the construction of God's temple, right? It's God given us all these gifts for the building of His church, some of these gifts are described as laying a foundation for it. So over in Ephesians 2, we, we looked at this carefully. Ephesians 2.20, I've underlined it there for you. Paul tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple and that the, the apostles and prophets laid its foundation at its start. He says that it's built, in chapter, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So over the last few weeks, we've looked at how God used apostles and prophets and those gifts like tongues and healing and miracles, the writing of Scripture, all of those things to set the foundation for His people once and for all. And now as we use our gifts, we're kind of in that, that 21 and 22 section of that verse in whom the whole structure being joined together grows now into a holy temple in the Lord. We're growing in that, off that foundation. Verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We use our gifts and we're continuing to build up that very temple that was built on the foundation of that apostles and prophets. And so we've been discussing those foundational gifts. So this morning you can think of today as kind of a transition. All right, A transition from those foundational gifts to the ongoing gifts. Because at least some of these gifts we're going to look at this morning help us kind of make that transition. And I grouped them together in this lesson because they are very challenging to interpret. All right? 
I was ready to just jump full on into the, the ongoing gifts, and I realized, no, there's a couple more here that I haven't really dealt with, and you guys are going to have questions about them. So I'm just going to group them all together, and we're going to do them all at one time. And people don't talk a lot about these gifts just for that reason. They're, they're kind of outliers, but they are very important to discuss. So this morning we're going to round out our study on those foundational gifts by looking at some of the ones that are harder to interpret. And we'll be looking at three of them in particular. Well, all right, you ready for them? I don't have these up. We'll call it, the first one is utterance. Nice. What does that mean? Uh, utterance. The next one is discernment, or the being able to tell the difference between the spirits. And the third one is faith. Faith. Well, faith is a, I suppose all believers are supposed to have that. All right, so gift of utterance, gift of discernment, gift of faith. And these three are found um, really in one spot, so it makes it easy for us. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 8 through 10. All right, and I've underlined them there for you. So, again, I say this every week, and some of you are very smart, and you just email me, and I send you all my notes. Okay? So, if you don't want to write feverishly and miss stuff, just send me an email, and I'll give you all my notes. All right? Because it's going to be a lot, lot, lot more data, just like every week. All right, these three gifts found in one place, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. And Paul writes there, for the, to the one is given through the Spirit, so clearly the context is gifts, to the one who is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith of the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, we've already talked about that. To another, working in miracles, we talked about that. To another, prophecy, we talked about that. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, which is what I'm calling discernment. To another, various kinds of tongues. We talked about that one in the interpretation of tongues. All right, so three kind of outliers here in this passage. And you'll notice these first two gifts, the first two underlines, both have the word utterance in them. You see that? Okay, you can read. Great. The ESV translates this as utterance to get the idea that it's some kind of speech. It's literally a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Some of your translations might have that. A word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. But the ESV translates it as utterance, helpfully, to get at the idea that it's some kind of speech. Now I'm taking both of these gifts together under one heading, which I'm just, I'm just calling utterance um, or utterances, and you're going to see why in a minute. All right? One heading here, and we'll deal with with both. We'll call it the gift of utterance. Yeah, it's kind of a funny, probably not the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about what gift you have. But what kind of speech? Okay, if this is speech, this is a word, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, what kind of speech are we talking about? Well, some people, not me, but some people take this as virtually synonymous with teaching. Okay, That's that's a viable option. Basically synonymous with teaching. They say it's speech that declares God's wisdom. Speech that declares God's knowledge. And therefore, it's drawn from God's word. Right? So that's, that's teaching. And again, there's... And it's okay. Like, well, why didn't you just say teaching there? Well, there, there's some gifts, as we're going to see, it has some overlap. Okay? And there's some different, different wordings. Maybe different hues are brought out with different, different titles. But some people would say that, and that's definitely one way to take this gift of utterance. This is basically the gift of, of teaching. 
But I think the very limited data that we have on this gift points us to something else, something that's much closer to prophecy than to teaching. Okay? Much more resemblance to prophecy than to teaching. So remember that when we covered prophecy, we said that what distinguishes it from teaching is what? You remember? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a revealed word of God. It's, it's revelation. It's revelatory. So when I get up here and teach, and I exercise the gift of teaching, I'm teaching from a text that's already been revealed. And I'm explaining it, interpreting and explaining that text. Prophecy is different in the sense that the prophet receives revelation from God and disseminates that revelation directly to you. So you see the difference. And this, I think, is in that same category, of the prophetic category. It's, it's uh, inspired speech. It's revelation from God. And we might call them additional forms of revelatory speech. Additional forms of revelatory speech, meaning that for the person with this gift, God is revealing, He's revealing wisdom to them in words. The word of wisdom. And then they share that word. God is revealing knowledge to them. The word of knowledge. And then they share that knowledge. So how do we know that, that in Paul's mind, this gift is revelatory instead of just merely teaching? Well, I think there's a hint, at least for the utterance of knowledge, over in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Can you see the colors? Kind of. All right. So I have it on the screen here. Now, in this passage, Paul's trying to show us how we've got to be motivated in love when we use our gifts. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. Basically saying, if you don't love, if you're not motivated by love and the use of your gifts, it's worthless. And then he gives some examples of the gifts that are worthless without love. And throughout this passage, he uses a little Greek, a little phrase in Greek that actually shows us how he's organizing his thoughts. And I've broken it up based on those thoughts. It's this conditional clause, these if clauses. You see those? If, verse 1, verse 2, and if, middle way through verse 2, and if I have all faith, verse 3, and if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body. So those little, they're in green on my screen, you can kind of see that from your screen. Um, those show us the, the separate if clauses. Now, I think he's organizing these around specific gifts. So, let me make it clear for you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. What do we think that's talking about? Tongues, you got it. All right, next one. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, clearly there's just one if clause in there. Prophecy. All right, next one. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. So, faith, clearly. And if I give away all I have, okay, giving. And this is, uh, I'm not really sure how to categorize this last one. But, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We'll call it the gift of service. (laughs) I have no idea. I can't always read Paul's mind as much as I try. My point here, okay, is verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that's interesting. 
The grammar here seems to indicate that in Paul's mind, he closely associates prophecy with understanding all knowledge. You see that? They're linked in his mind. Or he would have most likely put another if clause in between there. He would have said, and if I have prophetic powers, and if I, have, I understand all mysteries, to separate the gifts. But he doesn't do that. I know that's kind of pedantic, but I think that's important to observe. Like in his mind, I think he's, I think he's linking these together. This implies to me that he views this understanding all knowledge as something revelatory, something very similar, very close to prophecy, so much so that he puts it in the same gift cluster there in verse 2. Now, this is strengthened by that other word he uses, the idea of understanding mysteries here. So he says he understands all mysteries and all knowledge. Again, it's a hypothetical. He's making the point that even if he can do that, if he doesn't have love, then it's worthless. Um, so, but what is that mystery? What's that idea? Well, it's something that was once concealed, something that was hidden from view in the Old Testament, but now it's been revealed. It's a new revelation, in other words. Paul's essentially saying that if he has all prophetic insight, and that means if he's able to understand absolutely every inspired mystery or every inspired bit of knowledge, but he doesn't have love, it's worthless. So my only point I'm trying to make is that for Paul, it seems that he associates this word of knowledge with prophecy, not teaching. Okay, We see a similar association of knowledge with both prophecy and revelation in 1 Corinthians 14.6. Paul sandwiches this knowledge idea between revelation and prophecy here. You see this? He says, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation? or knowledge, or prophecy, and then he says, or teaching. So again, this isn't some kind of Loctite, slam-dunk argument for what I'm saying here, but it's data. As Paul is writing out what would benefit this church, it's not him coming and speaking a language, a tongue, that they can't understand. It's him speaking truth in a language they can understand. And his flow of thought starts... As, he's listed, as he lists the revelatory speech, so he, start, he says some revelation, and then he says some knowledge, some prophecy, and then some teaching. So revelation is clearly revelatory. Do you agree? Yeah, good. Okay. Knowledge, okay, maybe. Prophecy, yeah, we've seen that very clearly. Teaching is not. So it's, this is the last on the list. It's not revelatory. So I think it makes the most sense in the train of his thought to me to see this as three revelatory gifts followed up by the end of, as a, of, with a non-revelatory gift, which is uh, teaching. All right, so if that's, if that's knowledge and the word of knowledge, and that seems to be, you know, we've just been in 1 Corinthians here. I've been showing you how he's used this word in 1 Corinthians. So if that's knowledge and that makes sense, what about wisdom? There's the utterance of wisdom as well. Are there any hints that that the word of wisdom in this context refers to direct revelation too? And I think there are, but it's earlier in the letter. For the first few chapters of this letter, Paul's been making very clear, when he talks about wisdom, he's usually talking about the world's wisdom. And he's like, hey, that's that's not what I'm about. I'm not about the world's wisdom. He rejects that. But it's not as though he doesn't share wisdom. Okay, Paul says over in chapter 2, verse 6, he keys us in on the kind of wisdom he shares. He tells us what it is, where it comes from, so, so look at it here on the screen. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. 
although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart, notice this language, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He calls it secret hidden wisdom, something ancient, something eternal that's just now being made known to Paul and the apostles. And if you were to pan out in this wider context, it's the wisdom of the cross and its significance for our salvation. That's what he's talking about. So this once secret and hidden but now revealed wisdom, this cross wisdom, and it's by the Spirit, it's to the apostles. And as Paul's going to now say, he makes it known to us a little bit later in that same chapter. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Talking about apostles. So the apostles receive the Spirit. The Spirit's giving them revelation. And he says, verse 13, And we, the apostles, impart this in words, interesting, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, hang with me here. Paul is imparting words of wisdom, literally revelation from the Spirit, gospel revelation about Christ that was once concealed. And I think this is the word of wisdom, the utterance of wisdom in action. It's not just that Paul is repeating some stuff like that he had read from Proverbs, right? That would be teaching. He'd read it from Proverbs as wisdom. That would be, in one sense, like a word of wisdom. But in this context, it refers to Paul disseminating revelation of the gospel. The word of wisdom, which is which was actual revelation that he's been given by the Spirit, He's disseminating that. He's imparting that to his hearers. And I think that's the idea of the word of wisdom, this gift of the word of wisdom. So if we come back to these utterances, if we come back to chapter 12, I think the evidence points toward understanding these gifts in a similar category as prophecy. Perhaps as specific kinds of prophecy. I don't know. But I don't think he has in mind some situational word like God revealing to you who you're going to marry, as nice as that would be. Okay? It's not some, something situational or specific. I think, he, I think he's, he's saying these, are, these gifts refer to gospel wisdom, revelatory knowledge of the truth, and making that known to the congregation. So, since they are in the same category as prophecy... And since they function almost synonymously with prophecy, I would say that this points to the fact that these gifts have ceased today. They, they were part of that foundational period of the church. A church member in the first century would have received a word of knowledge about Christ or a word of wisdom about the nature of the gospel, and they would have made that known to the church. And for all we know, it may have been considered virtually the same as prophecy. It likely affirmed apostolic teaching. So whatever the case, I think it's safe to say that these utterances are additional forms of revelatory speech used for the foundation of the church, not necessarily after the gospel had been well established and then eventually canonized in our New Testaments. Now, I know that was extremely technical. Okay? You hung with me. But while we're at it, let's tick off two more gifts. Okay? Now, these next two are where we start transitioning from the foundation to something that's ongoing in some sense. All right? You'll see, you'll see what I mean. 
Let's talk about the gift of discernment for a second. Discernment. The only time this is ever called a gift is back in that text that we started in, in 1 Corinthians 12. And I've got to underline there for you. Paul calls it here the ability to distinguish between spirits, or the ability to discern between spirits. And so I'm calling it the gift of discernment. And thankfully, this one's a little bit more straightforward. It refers to the ability... Okay, kind of a long definition here. Didn't have time to sand this one down. Okay, The the ability to tell the difference between true spirit-inspired speech and false, demonically-inspired speech. Okay? The ability to tell the difference between truth, which is spirit-inspired speech, and falsehood, lies, deception, which is actually demonically-inspired speech. And now it's important to know that in the data that we have on this gift, it is associated with prophecy. And it's the ability to test the prophecies. Or to tell the difference between what was a true prophecy and one that was false. Those with the gift of discernment then protected the church from harmful false prophets. And then they authenticated the true prophets among them. Now let me show you where I'm getting this from. You guys have that definition? Okay. Let me show you just a few kind of points of data that lead me to this conclusion. First, notice that this gift of discernment flows immediately after the gift of prophecy. I didn't include this in here, but if we go back to our anchor text, it flows directly after the gift of prophecy in verse 10. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. So it flows, it flows right after prophecy. Now, again, that is not a slam-dunk argument, but it's worth noting, just observing. It's similar to how right next to it, after it, there's tongues and then the interpretation of tongues. So you see that interpretation follows tongues and they're closely related. But if we jump back to 1 Corinthians 14 here, here's some more evidence that it's associated with prophecy. Later in the same chapter, Paul writes, let two or three prophets speak. So how to use these gifts in the church. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So when a prophecy was given in the church, it wasn't just accepted outright. Why? Because Jesus said there's going to be lots of false prophets, right? They're running around. This doesn't mean, remember we covered this, that a prophecy can have truth and error together. That's not, that would be totally abnormal. Um, It's either truthful completely, or it's either in error and a false prophet. So these guys weighing what's said are evaluating these prophecies. And there were a lot of people out there posing as authorities in the church with a word from God. But in reality, they did not have one. And whether these folks realized it or not, they were actually being led not by the Holy Spirit, but by a false spirit who was trying to lead the church astray. So Paul says, let the others weigh what is said. Now, this word for weigh, it's important to know this, the word for weigh is closely related to the, to the verb discern in the previous, in the, in the, in the gifting. Okay? It's virtually the same. 
So this connection shows me that in Paul's mind, someone would give a prophecy or some kind of word from God, and then in his mind, those that were gifted with discernment then would discern it. They would weigh it. So it makes sense. All right, so so far, so good. But that raises another question, doesn't it? How would they go about making this determination? Right? How would they weigh this prophecy? Would they get a sense from God, supernaturally, that the prophecy wasn't right? You know, would God kind of, hey, that guy's a false prophet. And then, hey, whoa, whoa, get him out, you know? Is that how that worked? Um, maybe. We don't know. I mean, not, not 100% sure. I do think, though, it makes better sense to say that they had a profound doctrinal discernment. Okay? And then it came from knowing the truth. Knowing revelation that had already been given. Now, why would I say this? Well, do you remember back when we studied miracles? And that even in Deuteronomy, when some miracle worker, or prophet, or dreamer of dreams came in among Israel, and he's doing mighty signs and wonders? You remember what Moses told Israel to do? Check what he's actually saying against what has already been revealed. He says, if this prophet, dreamer of dreams, is coming, and he's doing all these mighty deeds, but then he says, hey, let's go worship other gods. Look, my miracles authenticate me. This is God. He's telling us to go worship these other gods too. They said, don't go after him because the Lord, Yahweh, is trying to test your hearts. Meaning, you've got to evaluate this guy based on the Torah, based on what God's already told you, based on written revelation because God has already told you not to worship other gods. So it doesn't matter if he can perform mighty miracles. If he's contradicting the Torah, if he's contradicting the written word of God, that you should not listen to them. So that test there was a doctrinal test, and I think the same is true here. Does what this prophet says contradict the written word of God? Is he contradicting prior revelation? If he does, he's a false prophet. And in Paul's day, get this, even Paul's own words as an apostle, even the very letter he was writing to the Corinthians, even the very instructions he wrote to them to regulate the practice of prophecy... All of that was inspired scripture. It was all written revelation. And so whoever was prophesying would be held accountable and called to submit to Paul's writings. And if they won't or if they didn't, it was clear proof that they were false. And that's why Paul writes this very thing a few verses later in the same same chapters in 1 Corinthians. He says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or anyone thinks he's spiritual, he should, he must acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So what's he saying? If the so-called prophet rejects Paul's words, which are actually the Lord's commands, then the man isn't a prophet. Paul's providing an objective standard for all those discerners in the church to evaluate from. And it's not just the discerners, but the whole church. Those with the gift are just leading the the way. They're, They're helping lead the way in discernment, and they're helping the rest of the body sharpen their own discernment. So my point here is I think there's data that points to God's not just zapping people with the gift of discernment with that discernment. It's coming from their own knowledge of written revelation, of the truth, and the Spirit is using that written revelation the truth to give them the discernment to help them weigh in 
and evaluate whether or not a prophet was true or false. So, let's ask the question, does this gift continue today? I think so. In a modified way. Okay? Now, again, I know I'm getting really nuanced. But I think it continues today in modified form. And here's what I mean. Since prophecy has ceased, we don't dedicate a time in our service for prophecy. You know, the prophecy mic. People can come up and just share. We don't do that. So, there's not a need for any kind of formal discernment to take place after they would share. And if somebody came in here, like right now, and they, cl- they claim to be a prophet, then all of us are going to kind of naturally be suspect. Right? But let me give you some other considerations for why this gift of discernment is still necessary. Here's one. Even though true prophecy was part of the foundation of the church, false prophets still abound today. As well as false philosophies and ideologies. It plagues the church. They're satanically inspired. The church is constantly at risk of being blown off course by Satan's winds of false doctrine and deceitful schemes. Ephesians 4.14 Many of Christ's faithful shepherds today also have this profound gift of discernment. It's granted by the Spirit, but it's built upon a lifetime of careful study of God's Word. That's how they're able to evaluate these winds of doctrine, deceitful schemes that are blown around, like Ephesians 4. So, how might you identify if you have this gift or not? Well, we all want to be growing in discernment, but if you have the gift of discernment, do you have a knack for understanding and applying truth to the situations that we face today as a church. You kind of have a knack for it. You trend in that direction of trying to, trying to take truth and, and apply it to these situations we face today as a church. Do you have a keen sense of error when you see it? Are you able to smoke it out and refute Satan's crafty lies with Christ's truth? Now the reality is that even... With those who have this initial gifting from the Spirit, God helps us grow in it over time. Okay, So it's not like it's just dumped on you all at once. We grow in this gifting over time. We learn to maximize this gift. And I was just <laughs> reflecting on my own life. It was funny when I was extremely immature um, how much I thought I had the gift of discernment. Right? But the reality was, I didn't actually know very much Scripture. I hadn't lived very long. Uh, I was newly converted. I hadn't internalized very many principles. I hadn't walked by Scripture's light for any sustained period of time. Now, if that's you, if you're younger in the faith, don't be discouraged. Just know that the gift of discernment is enhanced over time as you learn to walk by the truth. As you gain increased discernment from seasoned saints around you who've walked that journey, they're out ahead of you, and they've been trained to smell the lies of Satan like a mile off, you know? I've often thought about that, like, you know, listening to these old seasoned pastors that are just battle-tested, and they're sounding the alarm at something, and I was a younger Christian, and thinking like, man, that is like way too, like you're, you're, you're being way too critical. And then ten years later, exactly what they say has played out. So I think just as we learn this gift and we continue to continue to grow in it, so just learn from others that are out ahead of you. Now I think also by implication, this would also apply to what we might think of as 
as true counseling or soul care, or at least one aspect of, of the counseling gifts. Discernment involves being able to hear the lies that someone else is believing in a moment of sin or weakness. Being able to lead those folks to the truth. Help them distinguish the lie that they're believing. Help them supplant that lie with God's Word. Folks with the gift of discernment, have they first had this insight deeply embedded in their own life, right? They don't get to bypass their own growth, you know, to be able to help others grow. This has to happen first. They've been able to work back to the root issues themselves for their own hearts, learn to renew their own minds and repent of their own deceptions. But then, out of that, they're gifted to help others. And so, how do you know if this is you? Well, or, or do you have this propensity to stick your neck out there and, and graciously point out error in the lives of others so the person can realize the deception that they're in? And not just realize it, but also know where to turn to, to know what truth to sink their teeth into. That's the gift of discernment too, I think. And it's very useful for counseling others. It's definitely not the only gift in counseling um, that's it's very helpful, but it's certainly one of them. All right, so that's number two of three gifts here. And I know we're, it might be raising more questions, but that's okay. We're just kind of covering these up to wrap up this, this section. All right, let's talk about lastly, the, the, the last gift here that we haven't talked about. Let's check our time. Okay, not too bad. Better than normal. Um, <laughs> faith. Let's talk about the gift of faith. See this again in our, our anchored passage, verse 9. He says, To another faith by the same Spirit. He's given, given faith. It's a gift. Now, I know this might sound funny, right? It's a spiritual gift. You think of faith? Don't, aren't we all supposed to have faith? Um, isn't lack of faith a problem? Uh, a sin issue? Well, those are great questions, and you're right about that. So, at the outset, whatever the spiritual gift of faith is, we know that it's not quite the same thing as saving faith. It's distinct from it. Or we could say maybe it's not merely saving faith. Because some believers have it, and other believers don't, in terms of its gifting. So, what is this thing then? It seems to be a spirit-given faith that trusts God to do what might seem impossible or to act in ways that, that they trust God to act in ways that defy normal expectations. Can I just I kind of define it as the ability to trust God for something extraordinary? This faith asks God for things that seem like, you know, big asks, if you will. And people with this gift are willing to take God-glorifying risks. And their boldness before the Lord in prayer often encourages others in the body to, to, to be bold in, prayer, bold in prayer as well, when they might kind of shrink back. So I call it the ability to trust God for something extraordinary. Now, I'm sure we could nuance this a little bit, but, but this is what it really seems to be from the data. And you say, what data? Uh, well, really, the only elaboration of this gift is what we see in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, in the next chapter. And it's from a passage that we looked at earlier. 
uh, verse, verse 2 there, end of verse 2, he says, if I have all faith, notice this phrase, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I have all faith to remove mountains, what does that mean? Well, it's helpful to know that this idea of mo- removing a mountain is an idiom. Okay, It's an idiom, and it means doing the extraordinary. So from the miraculous things all the way down to the, the things that just defied normal expectations of the way the world works. Okay? And Paul's very likely drawing his language from some of Jesus' promises, like we find in Matthew. Okay, so uh, Matthew 17, 20. Jesus promises that nothing will be impossible for his apostles when they are given even the smallest amount of the gift of faith. He says, they're, they're, they're asking him, why can't we cast this demon out? And he says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, and I think he's talking about the gift of faith here, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and here it is, nothing will be impossible for you. So what was impossible for them in that context was casting out a particular demon. They couldn't do it. And so he's saying, if you have a gift of faith, you're going to move mountains, and that's going to be, nothing's going to be impossible for you, meaning you're going to be able to cast out demons. Later in the same gospel, Jesus connects the gift of faith to expectant prayer. Meaning those who have this gift will pray big kinds of prayers for the glory of God. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, because he just cursed it and it withered, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, there's the connecting it to prayer. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have, here it is, faith. Again, I'm probably talking about this gift of faith we see here. Now, we see this playing out in the the book of Acts as the apostles are working miracles and they're metaphorically moving mountains in the early church, Uh, especially as is clear when they're casting out demons that they couldn't cast out before, uh, before Jesus' ascension, but now they are. They're trusting God, they're healing others, they're casting out demons, and those are the extreme examples. If you want to think about the far left side of the spectrum of Mountain moving, um, that's, that's, that, those are extreme examples. And we argued that in a previous lesson, while, while God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, right, that we shouldn't necessarily expect these kinds of healings and things to characterize our ministry. doesn't mean He can't heal or doesn't heal. He often does in response to our prayers. But it shouldn't, we shouldn't expect it to characterize it in the way that it characterized the book of Acts, and that's because the healings and miracles were primarily signs They're pointing to something. Say, hey, they pointed to the authentication of Jesus as the Messiah and to the twelve as his official representatives. We talked about that in a previous lesson. So you might be wondering, well, does that mean the gift of faith has ceased? Again, we're not talking about saving faith, but this mountain-moving kind of faith. Well, I don't think so. While we might not regularly be doing signs and wonders... Um, in the church today, it seems clear that there's an ongoing gift of faith in certain people. Faith that trusts God to work mightily for the sake of His mission. I think of men throughout church history 
Men like George Mueller, who prayed giant prayers for the glory of God and just saw an incredible amount of answered prayers that defied normal human expectations for the way things work. Or men like Hudson Taylor, who took extreme risks and he stepped out in some incredible ways, trusting God, asking God for things. From, he prayed some very big asks. And that's the gift of faith. God was delighted to answer the prayers of men like that, and he's delighted to answer prayers of, of that today. I've even seen some in this church, folks I know very well, that have prayed these kind of big things, specific things, often in secret, and they've seen God act in ways that run counter to the normal expectations that we would, that we would think of. I don't know if they would say they have the gift of faith, but it certainly, from my vantage point, looks like they have the gift of faith. So it does seem that this gift has a continuing purpose as Christ's mission extends to all the nations. And we ask God for things that seem humanly impossible. And there are certain ones in the congregation, apparently, that have this ability, this God-given ability to trust Him for things that seem impossible. As examples to the rest of us to follow in their footsteps. Now, as we're thinking through this, especially for some of you who are younger in the faith, this gift might be mistaken for some sort of presumption, right? Thinking if you just ask hard enough, if you just believe enough, then he'll give you whatever you want, you know? Like, man, I really hope I have the gift of faith, you know, to get everything I want. So how might we distinguish if, if our prayer is a prayer of faith or an, or an exercise of the gift of faith that will come with God's answers, or if we're just being presumptuous? Well, James, the brother of our Lord, he helps us here when it comes to asking God for things. And we'll just, we're just going to blitz through some of these filters here. You can think of them as kind of filters for your prayers um, to help you evaluate. Okay, am I, am I being presumptuous here with the Lord? Or am I actually asking in, in faith in a way that God would answer? Well, first, James establishes that when we pray, we need to pray expectantly. We need to ask with faith in God's character. We need to know that God hears us, and we don't want to waffle in unbelief or fear. Okay, he says that in James chapter 1. Ask with faith in his character. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, James 1, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. I Meaning you've got to know that about God. He's a generous God. And let him ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. Meaning he doesn't really trust the Lord. He doesn't trust his character. He's waffling around. Is God generous or not? He's got to deal with that. God will always grant us wisdom when we ask in faith. But even if he chooses to say no to something else that we've asked him for, May it not be for a lack of trust in him or his character. So we've got to dial that in first. Don't, don't, don't waffle around on the Lord's character. Next, he says to ask with the right motives in James chapter 4. Ask with the right motives. And he implies that we should check our motives when we are asking God for things. He tells his readers that some of them are asking for things, but they're asking with the wrong motives. They're asking God for things that will feed their idolatrous desires and passions. 
He says over in James 4, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. How so? To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You're just an idolater. You're you're adulterer. When you're asking God for things that are just they're just going to feed your idolatries. So when it comes to the big asks, you know the prayers of faith. Why are you asking God to do those things? What's your motive? Is it to be made much of by your friends or your church leaders? That'd be feeding an idolatrous passion. Fear of man. Is it to feed some lustful desire in your heart for some earthly pleasure? Or is it for God's glory? Is it for the advance of God's kingdom? Is it for the good of others around you? Those are what, those are what should be motivating our, our big asks in these prayers of faith. All right? Finally, ask from a life of integrity. Our lives should be marked by integrity when we ask God for things. Meaning, what is it? Integrity. There's no hypocritical discrepancies between what we say and how we're living. It's what it means to, be integ- to have integrity. It's what you say is matching what you are. That means then our prayers will be marked by the confession of our sins. Right? That's where it starts. That's where integrity starts. Okay? Because you and me, we're sinners. So our prayers will be marked by ongoing confession of our sins. We don't come to the Lord as though we are not sinners or that we are not in need of His mercy constantly. We come painfully aware of it. We come confessing it and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Unrepentant sin in our lives hinders our prayers. Unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin hinders prayer. And a life that's growing in righteousness leads to power in prayer. Look at what James says here in James chapter 5. There's a lot here, obviously. But, and, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Notice the, the order there. Confess your sins and then pray that you may be healed, that God will answer your prayers. Because the prayer of a righteous person, a person with integrity, a person that's living this kind of life. It has great power as it's working. And he gives an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Meaning he's sinful, human. But he's humble, integrity. He's striving for righteousness. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years, six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What's he saying here? A life that's a righteous life, a life that's Confessing sin is a life that has power in prayer. So if these things are in your life, if you're asking in full awareness and faith in God's good and generous character, if you're asking with a confidence that He hears you, if you're asking from the right motives, if you're living a humble life of integrity, then ask away. Alright? Pray big prayers. So real quick, what are some examples of ways people with the gift of faith can edify the body? Well, obviously, um, the gift of faith that's paired with something like the gift of evangelism, that could be sweet, right? That's, that's church planting 101. Um, we'll talk about evangelism next time. But asking God for big things like that, for extensions of his mission, 
see a people group that doesn't know the Lord to come to faith and know the Lord, to be used in that way. Or maybe the person's just a church member. You know, they're not a pastor or evangelist or anything like that, but they have an incredible prayer ministry. They have an incredible intercessory ministry for the sake of the body. And if you have this gift, you're likely more inclined to seek the Lord for the needs of others. That's kind of the first thing you think about. That's where you go. And then you want to draw others' attention to how the Lord is specifically answering prayer to stimulate them to pray too. You're probably the one that's always trying to get the prayer groups going, you know, and like seeking the Lord in prayer. If you have this gift, you're, you're far more likely to, to seek the Lord for the needs of others. You'll probably be exhorting others to seek Him too, and you'll be powerfully modeling that in your own life. Because like all the gifts, we all need to be practicing this kind of confident faith, don't we? But the reality is that God has gifted certain people with this kind of extraordinary faith. To ask God for big things concerning His mission, His purposes. And it's, it's just that those with the gift of faith model it for the rest of us, and they stimulate us toward the practice of it in our own lives. Alright, so we did a little three for one today. Uh, these are some of the harder gifts to interpret. There's not a lot out there uh, about them. But I think there's enough to help us map this out of, of what these things are and maybe how they work. Um, and in a way, these gifts kind of function, and for our purposes, sort of transitioning us from those foundational gifts to the ongoing gifts, the gifts that are continually in use today. And so we're going to take a couple weeks off because we've got that Truth and Light conference. And then it's going to be spring break. So I don't want to start a revolt and keep moving in this series, especially in the most practical part of it when half of you are gone, okay? So I'm going to wait, and we'll probably do something different uh, on spring break week. Then whenever everybody's back, we'll jump back into the, the practical kind of end of our series the next four weeks or so where we'll look at these ongoing gifts, how to identify them, how to maximize them. And then I've also got some charts coming. So if you're like, whoa, a lot of gifts, what do I do with them? Um, I've got some charts coming that will help you kind of organize some of these gifts. Uh, I was going to show it today, but I, I was like, I know I'm going to be out of time, so I'm not going to even worry about that. We'll do it next time. Um, but I'll send those to you guys so you can kind of map out where these gifts are. Are they continuing today? Have they ceased today? Uh, we'll help you look at them in light of the speaking gifts and serving gifts of First Peter. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll get all that together uh, next time and in weeks to come. All right? We're going to go ahead and dismiss. To be dismissed uh, to the main service. Now, and uh, we'll see you over there.